didn't say that I, I probably should say before we move to help for the brain, help for the body. So there are some kids that you're going to say, take three deep breaths, do square breathing, and they're already amped up enough that they cannot do the breathing. And so with those kids, if you are in a space where you could say, this really is easier with little kids. I'm trying to picture how you do this with your youth group, but I think you could probably pull it off. Um, I want you to go run a lap. Like, go run a lap around the house. If, you're, if they're your children, you could say, go run up and down the stairs three times. If you're in youth group, go run a lap around the building. But if they can't get to breathing, they at least can move first, and then they can calm themselves back down. But we want to try and start that, you know, if you were to think of a 1 to 10 scale, we really want to start that at, like, 2 rather than 9. At 9, they're going to need to move if they're already there. So, okay, we're going to shift from... The body, too, we talked about how it impacts the brain, but to talk about what we can do in those moments when it is. So one of the things we want to do is name the worry. So for any of us, y'all, I think when we have a voice in a, inside of our heads, until we hear differently, we think it's true. Whatever it's telling us, we think it's true. For kids, they particularly think it's true because they don't understand. And so if it's telling them the worst-case scenario, if it's telling them that they're not capable of whatever it is in front of them, they think that voice is true and are given a lot of credibility to it. And so one of the first things I'll do in counseling is helping them come up with a name for the worry. To separate that voice outside of themselves takes away some of its power. And so anybody remember what the little girl named hers? Bob. No idea why she came up with Bob. I love that she did, though. I have another little girl I'm working with who she named her. She's younger, but... She named hers Princess Worry because she said she was the queen and she could boss the princess around, which I love. Um, I had a group of high school girls that we talked about this. We actually talked about a kind of bigger picture of just the voice in their heads um, and what they would name that voice. And for so many kids who are dealing with anxiety, it's a really critical voice. And so if they could give that voice a name, what would they give it? And I had, you know, you can imagine high school girls are like, Agnes. I mean, they come up with all kinds of kooky things. But whatever it is for them, helping come up with a, a name for that can really help reduce the power of its impact on them. So naming the worry, and then what happens, they can start to recognize that it's worry. So if, for example, you are a parent and you have an 8-year-old who comes up to you and says, what time are you going out? Who's babysitting me? Wait, when are you going to be back? What's going on? And they're in that five loop. They, that parent can say to the child, is that you talking or is that Bob? Because I'm not going to answer Bob. What do you want to say back? Or if you have a child in your youth group who you know battles worry and anxiety to some degree, and they say, I don't know who I'm going to sit with, or I don't know who I'm going to hang out with, or who am I going to sleep beside on the retreat? I don't know what I'm going to do about the, then you can say to them, that sounds a lot like worry to me. That doesn't sound like you. What do you want to say back? Because that's the thing we're going to do next is we're going to teach them to talk back. So with younger ones, we'll call it bossing back because girls love to boss other people around. With boys, we'll call it bullying back, um, the worry monster, whatever name they come up with. But adolescents, I think just to teach them to talk back to their worry is so important and one of the best coping skills we can give them. Because one of the things that happens that I read in the research is that worry has no memory. And so when they become anxious again, they don't remember that they've ever defeated it before. They don't remember the coping skills they use, none of that. 
And so when we're helping with parents, I mean, really, if you were going to say three things to parents with a child who worries, I would talk about breathing, I would talk about grounding, and then I would talk about this very thing. They need to come up with a name for it, and the parent needs to help them learn how to talk back to it. Okay, I know we're, you're in seventh grade, we're going to your first party where people are dancing, you feel like you don't know how to dance, you don't know what to do, but that sounds like worry to me. What do you want to say back? And then they can say, okay, I've already beat worry before. That's right. This is worry. I know how to beat you. I'm fine. I can hang out with so-and-so, whatever the situation is. They have things that they know. I'm not going to give you power over me, worry. We know whose voice that really is. And so I'm not going to give that power over you. But they learn to talk back to it in that way. And what happens instead is parents will often go down or we will go down what's called the content trap with kids. And so whatever it is they're worried about, we'll start to talk about with them over and over and over. So it's not helpful when a kid comes to you and says, um, my mom's going out of town and I think she might die while she's gone. So I had a child say that to me in counseling before I ever did this research, um, probably about five years ago when I didn't understand about anxiety as much. She was a fifth grader, so she was younger than the kids y'all are working with, but she came in and said, my mom's going on a trip with a bunch of her girlfriends, and I think she's going to get in a car accident and die, and I cannot stop thinking about it. And so I said, well, let's, let's talk more about that. And tell me, um, when you've been in the car with your mom, has she ever had a wreck? No. Has your mom ever gotten a ticket when you've been in the car with her? By the way, I knew this mom was a one on the Enneagram. She's type A, and so she does a lot of things really right. And so I knew I was kind of safe to talk about these things. And so I said, um, has you ever gotten a ticket with you? No. Do you feel safe when you're in the car with your mom? Yes. Is your mom going to be driving on the trip? Yes. So what do you think really is the likelihood that your mom's going to have a car accident? Well, not very likely. So we had this, I felt like it was a really great session. And at the end of 50 minutes, I walked her down the stairs of Daystar, and her mom was coming to pick her up. Y'all can probably guess what I'm about to say. Her mom was coming to pick her up. She was five minutes late, ten minutes late. She's a one. She's not normally late. So I'm starting to panic internally. Fifteen minutes late. I go out on the porch and sitting with this girl who's visibly getting really anxious. And then 20 minutes later, her mom pulls into the parking lot and jumps out of the car and starts running towards us and says, I'm so sorry I was late. I had a wreck on the way to pick her up. Yeah, so not helpful. Um, and what I wish I'd known would have been to say, is that you or is that worry? Because what do you want to say back to worry? And she could have said, worry, you don't have power over me. I've beaten you before. It's just my brain playing tricks on me. I'm stronger than you are. That's what I wish she would have said. I have a little girl right now who loves to tell her worry that it's stupid because she's not allowed to use the word stupid anywhere else. So however we teach them to talk back to it, we want to teach them to do that. And to recognize it, because like we said, we're not going to change the fact that these kids are conscientious and they care deeply and things matter to them. It's a part of how God made them. And so what happens is anxiety with kids is like whack-a-mole. And it's separation anxiety younger. And then they're afraid they're going to throw up. And then it turns into something else as they get older. And when we're going down the content trap, we're just banging out whatever it's popping up as which is not helpful to them because the reality is the same tools work. And so when we say, that sounds more like worry to me, I know you've been working on your worry. 
Sounds like it's just showing up in a new way. What did you do last time that helped? And then they can say back to you because they already know how to do it. So we want to help them come up with a voice like that where they can talk back to it specifically. So after the research, I wrote a book for parents called Raising Worry-Free Girls. But if David was here with boys, he would say to you, all the same things are what we're doing with boys too. So it can be helpful in that context. But I also wrote a book for elementary age girls because that's the average age of onset. And it's called Braver, Stronger, Smarter for all the reasons we're talking about. And it stars my dog, Lucy, that helps me counsel that y'all saw. She's a little black and white dog that was waving is what we call it in the video. I don't know if y'all remember her. And um, the artist who is amazing with the book. It's actually a workbook for kids. She did a feeling chart with Lucy's face. So it's just so cute. I have to have it up. Um, so health for the heart is really pertaining to a lot of what's driving these emotions for kids. And the anxiety specifically. And David and our boss, Melissa, and I wrote a book called Are My Kids on Track? And in that book, and it's also season one of our Raising Boys and Girls podcast, but we have four emotional, four social, and four spiritual milestones we believe kids, all kids need to reach and are reaching to a lesser degree than ever before. The first emotional milestone is an emotional vocabulary. It's why when we travel and speak to parents, we take a feelings chart like this or with little faces because Again, a child who has their schedule thrown off at the last minute doesn't know how to say, when you changed my schedule, it made me feel anxious. And often the child who, or the teenager who is really conscientious, trying hard, things matter to them, what are they not going to talk about? More of what we would consider negative feelings. That's the child that I see, or teenager I see in counseling, who doesn't want to say, I got really angry at such and such friend. Or I'm really disappointed in my parents. They don't know how to talk about those harder things sometimes because they're trying so hard to be perfect. And they think those emotions aren't a part of perfection. And so they're stuffing it. And so it comes out as anxiety. And so the more that when we're working with kids, when we're around kids, the more we can use really appropriate language. And we're not saying I'm depressed, I had a panic attack, I have anxiety unless you do, when you feel like you need to tell the kids that. But when we're saying things like, I'm sad, or I felt worried, when we're helping parents, too, on understanding that that's a thing now with kids, that parents need to use non-catastrophic language, that's so important in helping kids find their way to an appropriate emotional vocabulary. And, y'all, I think if we could get back to that, I really, this is going to sound extreme, but I really do think the suicide rates would drop. There's a lot of other factors that play into it, but I think that's part of it because I, I see kids who are talking about that and end up in the hospital because no one's listening and they can't get to words big enough to describe what they're feeling. It's not the reason all of them end up in the hospital, but some of them. And so it is, I think it's never been as important to help kids find their way to express their emotions and anxious kids are less likely. And the other piece of that is, when I sit with a kid who's anxious, somebody came up and asked me, when you're talking through anxiety with kids, what are the best questions? Because I've heard well, it's not helpful to say why. And my response was, I think the best first question is when. When are you getting more anxious? In other words, what's your trigger? Because I cannot tell you how often I sit with kids, and it is actually when they got their feelings hurt. Or 
I, I feel like y'all probably experienced this too. I feel like in every home there's one child who's like the outdoor thermometer of what's happening internally in the home. And that child often is going to be anxious or angry. And so the longer you sit with them, then you find out there's a parent, the parents are getting divorced. Or there's some, somebody that's just exploding in anger in the home. Or there's something happening that emotionally is contributing to that. Because we want to drill down to what's going on underneath that's triggering the anxiety. Because it's often just a symptom of a deeper thing. And if you're anxious, it is so important to figure out the trends of when's it happening. Because then you can start to be more preventative in stopping it. So to be aware of helping create an emotional vocabulary, talking about those things, again, is really important. Also, the thing we would do next in counseling is what's called exposure therapy, where we're helping them work towards the scary thing in small doses. So, like, this is a young kid's example, but it's probably a great example of what an exposure would look like. I have a lot of kids I see who won't sleep in their own rooms. So, with that child who won't get out of their parents' bed, you would start with having them sleep on the floor next to their parents' bed on a mattress moving the mattress into the hall, gradually moving the mattress into their bedroom. And when you're working on exposures, when you're helping a parent, coach a parent through this, one of the things that research says is you do want to incentivize them a lot. Like they need to get a lot of rewards along the way from their parents. They don't have to be just monetary rewards. They can be even time with their parents or getting to do something with you could be a cool reward along the way. But you don't want to say when you do something five times in a row, because an anxious child feels pressure anyway, and that creates more pressure. But when you get to five times, so if that takes two weeks, that's fine. But when you get to five times. And so I had an older, I had a seventh grader I was working with. And how many of y'all live in this area? Not very many of you. Okay, so here's a little known fact about Nashville. You know, all these people are moving to Nashville in droves. And I'm from Little Rock, Arkansas. I will say I love Nashville. I'm so happy. Blue pig, who said that? Back there, way to go, yay. Um, anyway, one of the things that's different about Nashville and would be a reason that people shouldn't move here is that we have cicadas. And I'm not, in Arkansas we had cicadas and they would come out in the summer and you would hear them and they were kind of annoying or you'd see the shells attached to things. I know other areas of the country have Nashville-type cicadas, too. But Arkansas does not, so you might rather move to Little Rock. Um, but it is, I mean, I am not exact. I really don't think I'm exaggerating. It's like biblical plague proportions <laughs> in Nashville. Nashville people, would you all agree with that? I mean, it's nuts. It's like you see people mowing the lawn. They're attracted to sound. I remember seeing a guy mowing a lawn, and he turned, and you couldn't see his back. It was covered in the cicadas. Like, they're everywhere. It's awful. I can't remember when the next ones are coming. It's awful. So they will say on the news usually, now this is one of the summers, there's like a seven-year kind and a 13-year kind, and I don't know where we are in the timeline. But I hate these things. Like I really consider moving every summer that they come. And I'm so thankful I work at a camp. And, um, but I had this girl come in who had heard the cicadas were coming one summer. This was like four years ago. She was a seventh grader. And she had so much anxiety over the cicadas. I was not the best therapist for her because I did too. So we decided we would work through it together. And y'all can imagine, exposure therapy and counseling, what we did was we started with, I, had her, I made her draw a cicada. Then we ended up looking at cicada photos. 
And then we watch cicada videos on YouTube. We just work towards exposures with cicadas. I couldn't find one to bring it into the room, but um, that would have been helpful if I could have. But basically, thinking about exposure therapy means helping them work towards the scary thing with props, gradually working towards them. If, I mean, so for school-based, if we were to go back to that, if a child really has debilitating anxiety, to take them and drop them off in the school building would be terrible. We don't want to do that. Is help them work their way back into fully functioning in that setting, whatever it is, is helping them do the scary thing, which is what they need and when they're going to feel most proud of themselves. And so if, they, if you have a child who's terrified to go, they have a little bit of social anxiety, they don't want to go on the retreat, to sit down with them and talk about, okay, let's picture. That's one of the things I do in exposure therapy a lot. Let's picture what it's going to be like when you get there. Okay, who do you and, – and some of that stuff feels like, I don't know if you – this is probably more my age of people that used to be really afraid of new agey kind of things. It sounds new agey, but it's really good and helpful for them to picture walking into the building again. Who are they going to talk to? What's it going to be like? And they breathe. They're doing square breathing all the time they're describing it. So their body is regulated as they're walking through the scenario. And so practicing with them, role playing, all those things are a part of that to help bring down their level of anxiety as then they learn to do the scary things. So exposures are really important. And y'all, I think that's a place with parents too that parents really push back. And it's a, a place where I think your voices are important. I heard some, blame it on me. I heard somebody speak who's been working with kids for 27 years and she said, hands down, they have to do the scary thing but you don't want to do it without help. So let's come up with a plan. Or let me put you in touch with a good therapist that can help you come up with a plan. Or let me figure out how to bring Sissy and David to my church so they can get in your face so I don't have to. Any of those things are options, but we want to help parents help kids work towards the scary things. So exposures, and they've got to do it over and over. The, the main reason that kids don't work through whatever it is that's in front of them is they don't keep doing whatever it is they're trying to do. And kids will try often once. I have so many kids will come back to see me, especially teenagers, who will say it didn't work. It's because they tried it once. They didn't try it over and over again. And so we need to help them figure out as much buy-in as we can. It's part of why rewards are really helpful. So practice makes progress. It does not make perfect because, again, we're not going to be able to change the bent of their little personality. It's just a part of who they are. Um, and the bottom line is kids feel bravest when someone they love reminds them the truth of who they are. You got this. I'm going to remind you that you are brave and strong. And y'all, in those places, you're going to be with parents that I'm never going to get to because they never bring their kids to counsel, counseling. And that might be the really anxious parent who's saying, you're not capable, you're not capable. And so you may be that child's only voice who's saying, you know what, I think you got it. I believe in you so much. You are so strong and brave and smart. And I know it feels scary, but you're stronger than your fears. We want to keep giving them those messages over and over and over. This is who I believe God made you to be. You're so capable. And I want to show you all one last clip that I love this Nike commercial. Some of y'all probably have seen it, and I think it's such a great picture of it. And then we're going to move to the hope, our hope section of the talk, and then we'll, we'll do some question and answer. So pay attention to what he's communicating in this. This is you at the U.S. Open. This is you. 
Good service, Moses. Very good. Keep the perfect service motion you have. Right there. Good. Switch to the backhand. Lean into it. Good follow through. Take the net. Nice try. Make sure you control in that ball on every shot. There you go. Very good. Back, back, back. Clear away. Be tough, just like you want to win. Just like you at the U.S. Open. Right there. This is you. Very good, Serena Williams. Isn't that awesome? How many of y'all have seen that commercial before? I love it so much. And what was he saying to her? You got this. Yes. You got this. And it's going to be hard. I mean, he keeps talking about the U.S. Open with her. And she's so little. That's going to be a big challenge. But you got it. I believe in you. And, and research does say that the biggest agent of change in a child's life is the parent. And so somehow, you all, we've got to keep helping parents get that message and communicate that message to kids. I wish it was us. I wish we were enough of a force to stop the train sometimes when it's going in an unhealthy direction, but we're not. And so we've got to do whatever we can to help those kids get those messages and help parents turn the tide to communicate something different. And then we do know there are times, I, I tell our staff sometimes that there are kids that I feel like you know, you can imagine when you're counseling kids, so often they're living in the environment that's really creating the need for counseling, and the environment's not going to change. And so I will say to our younger counselors sometimes, it's like we have our fingers in the dam, and we're just doing everything we can to stop the water from erupting until these kids get out of their homes and can work through whatever it is. And so you all are dam fillers for a lot of kids until they can get there. But in the meantime... We can bring hope into their worlds and into who a sense of who they are that they might not know otherwise. And so we want to do everything we can to communicate that. So the, the verse that I use the most in the worry-free book is this one, John 16, 33. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. And, and y'all, one of the things, and I would imagine y'all are talking about that this some this week, but one of the things that I'm seeing with kids on the trends is I have never seen a bigger disparity between kids' emotional lives and their spiritual lives. It feels like kids are talking, even talking about mental health. You know, dumb, I'm, I hope I'm not going to offend anyone, dumb 13 reasons why propelled that into the spotlight in a really terrible way in terms of how it really portrayed getting help for mental health issues. But I think kids are being exposed to conversations about mental health in ways they haven't ever been before. Like we said, they're talking about it in school all the time. But I have less kids whose faith makes a difference in their emotional lives than I've ever had, which is so distressing to me, so upsetting. Because bottom line, I mean, I'm going to oversimplify because – Obviously, as a counselor, I would say 
anxiety, depression, all those things at some point become a chemical issue in the brain where there's nothing we can do beyond getting on medication for us as adults and for kids too. But before that happens, there's a lot we can do in the process. And I think until we get to it taking over in that chemical way in our brain, if I really leaned into my faith, if I really trusted Jesus in the way that I think I can, I don't know that I'd have much anxiety at all. And so for us in this age of anxiety to help kids anchor to truth is so important. And part of it, you all, is I think we're not being relevant. You might be more relevant than I am. But I think culturally we're not being relevant. And I think some of that, even when they're putting negative things up, it's like this glamorizing of negative things. But when you think about the degree, when I think <laughs> about the degree of, I'm afraid it's mostly women, um, that are wearing T-shirts that say, but there are some men out there wearing graphic T-shirts too that say this kind of thing, best day ever. That we're saying things like, living my best life. I have my best day ever for about 90 seconds of a day. I live my best life maybe one day a month because I'm living in a fallen world. And there are hard things that happen. And I think as Christians, when we're promoting that kind of message, I think it's like the new version of the prosperity gospel. And I think kids then get to the point where, again, adolescents have a lot of big feelings. And if, you all, if I were to bring in the book that we don't diagnose kids at Daystar, but if we did and I were to bring in the book we would use that is the diagnostic manual and I were to read to you what bipolar depression looks like, it's going to sound like 90% of the teenagers you're working with. Normal adolescent development looks a lot like bipolar depression and like normal depression. They're just up and down. I had a mom one time that I loved. She's so funny. And she came in and she said, my daughter is making me nuts. She said, she's so all over the place emotionally. And she came to me and said, mom, do you think I might be bipolar? And she looked at her daughter and said, oh, honey, there's no way you're bipolar. You're never that happy. <laughs> But that, they're just up and down and up and down and up and down. And so when we're acting like life is perfect, this side of heaven, we're not speaking to the truth of where they are. And we're getting away from the gospel. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus said those words. In this world, you will have trouble. We need to tell kids that. We need to talk about the fact. When we have seniors in high school, we are not doing them a service to say, college is the best time of your life. We need to be saying, I don't know if I'm crazy. I hope you all felt this too. College was some of the loneliest years of my life. I got in my car and drove off campus and sobbed all the time, listened to Christian music. I was lonely my freshman year a lot. I think most of us were. Or maybe you needed to be in counseling because you were out of touch with your feelings. And so when we say to them, college is going to be hard, and it's going to be even harder for you than it was for me because I didn't have a highlight reel splashed up on all my other friends who were at other schools looking like they had made friends day one, the best friends they'd ever have. I can't even imagine what it's like to go to college and look at social media and look at friends at other schools when you're thinking, I don't know if I'm even at the right school. Maybe I need to leave. So many kids want to transfer. Instead, when we're saying to seniors in high school, 
College is going to be awesome. You are going to love it. You're going to learn so much. You're going to find some of your best friends. And you're going to have trouble. You're going to feel lonely. You're going to feel lost. You're going to miss your family. That's going to be really normal. I think it's going to keep that child from sitting there thinking, what's wrong with me? I'm at the wrong school. I need to transfer. Because those are all the thoughts that they have. And when we further that to say, you're going to have trouble, but Jesus is right with you. Not alone in it. That's the message they need to hear. And that's when their faith can meet their emotional life in a way that I think really can be ballast for them. And that's what we want. That's what I want for these kids I sit with every day in my counseling office. How can their faith be the ballast that really anchors them to truth? where they're not as much like this. So in this world, expect worry and trouble and suffering. Those things are going to happen. We need to be relevant in a way that we're talking about those things with them. We're giving them space to talk about it. We're normalizing that to some degree. We're talking about a fallen world. And we can take heart and have a sense of trust because what? Yeah, he's overcome. He is in them. He is with them. I I sat with a mom of a younger girl once and said to her, I want you to start saying to your daughter when you see her showing signs of bravery, when you see her do things that are courageous, when you see her show strength, I want you to say, I'm so proud of you. I saw that in you. You are so brave. I want that to be a message you're communicating to her. And this mom said, which I get it, the mom said, I hear that all the time, and I feel like it's only going to make her feel more pressure. I totally get that. But when we're saying, it's not her, it's him. It's him inside of her. To say to kids, you're going to have trouble, but you're not alone in it. God is inside of you. You've got the Holy Spirit. You have got more courage than you ever imagined because he's with you. It's not something they have to rise to, but it's something they can lean on. That's what we want them to hear. They can have a sense of trust because he has overcome the world. And I, I mean, y'all know America, we are leading the statistics on anxiety. We're leading the statistics on a lot of things, but anxiety is one of them. And I had an amazing experience a couple years ago and I'm a part of an organization or involved with an organization called Justice and Mercy International. And they do these things called, they're in a lot of different regions, but in Brazil, they have something called Jungle Pastors Conferences. And so they're literally on the Amazon River in the jungle, and they have this conference center, and they bring in jungle pastors. And so these families, I mean, it's the husbands and wives that will come together, and they literally travel. I met a couple who had traveled for a week in a flat-bottom boat to get to this conference. And you can imagine, I mean, these people, the stories that they tell, it's just phenomenal to sit with them. But things like, you know, things we would never face. They are going into their building on a Sunday morning and using a machete to kill the snakes so that people can safely come into the building for church. I mean, just horrors, really, to me, um, much worse than cicadas. And so, anyway, it was so fascinating to talk to them. There was a lot of depression in the area. There's a lot of hopelessness um, because the floods come and come and come. There was a lot of substance abuse because I think people aren't knowing how to cope with it. I did not hear one person talk about anxiety. Not one. Which I think had more to do with the fact that they didn't have anywhere to go but to trust. 
they had that sense of, in this world, I have a whole lot of trouble. And the only reason that I can overcome is because of Jesus. And so how do we have conversations like that with kids? I mean, that's one of the things I would sure encourage. What does that look like today for us to need him when we don't? When we're in a lot of places where practically kids don't think they need him. They're not living in a way where they do. And so for us to have conversations with kids about what, are the, what does that look like, I think can help them understand how their faith can inform their emotions in a way that I don't think it's coming to them normally. And that's what we want to do. We want to change that where they have a different undergirding for these emotions that are so big. And so with parents in parenting seminars, I typically will put up, oh, sorry, I forgot to say that. So Melissa, who is our director at Daystar, founded Daystar and has a lot of wisdom. She's the one who said this first. And I love, and it's really what I think those JMI pastors, jungle pastors were experiencing, that courage is not the antidote to anxiety, but it's trust. That's what we're talking about. That kind of trust, which is so hard. You all, it's so hard for us and our brains are fully developed. It's that much harder for them. And so helping them find their way to that, I think, is one of the best gifts we can give kids in today's time. I'm totally in the middle of your picture. I don't know how to get out of it. (coughs) So um, with parents, um, where I would go next, I have this little devotional that I love. And um, it is 365 verses on just the love of God. And, And it has these different prayers in it. And there's this prayer by some guy, I don't know how to say his name, Um, that I think lived 100 years ago, and I think it's exactly what we're talking about. And so I love even that it starts with, above all, trust in the slow work of God. And I think that's part of the trouble for kids today, too, is they're used to things that are happening so quickly that that sense of the slow work is really hard. And my minister talked once about how important it is about how much we see. If you were to drive through your neighborhood at 40 miles per hour versus five, how much more you see when you're driving at five five miles per hour. Put your kids in the van and drive at five miles per hour and talk about it. Anything we can do, y'all know, where we're creating conversation in different places, where we're getting their attention, like Michael was talking about, in different ways. How do we do that? How do we talk about what it looks like to trust in the slow work of God? And so I have a parent version of this that I made because, um, because this guy, I think, has been gone for a long time. And so I felt like I could take a little liberty and we can't tell him. Um, so I added some things in and I'm going to sit down so y'all can take photos of this. It's a great thing to put in your office somewhere where parents can see it because I think it's such a good reminder. But this part of it, too, only God could do what this could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. But here's the parent version. So. Um, just in the end, that God is at work in this very moment in the life of your child. I mean, just to ease their anxiety some, because they're having anxiety over their kids. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within him or her or them as parents will be, give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading your child and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself, and I would say in them too, in suspense and incomplete. You and your children will look what trust looks like as you wait with hope and recovery the kind of message we want to be giving parents helping them lean into the slow work of God and discover trust in that and then rippling over to kids and helping them get there too so I 
know y'all are getting kind of close to lunch. So I would love to answer some questions if y'all have some to talk about some different things. And then um, I'll get y'all out so you can get something to eat. And I'm going to put up you all too. We have a website, RaisingBoysAndGirls.com. And really, if you if it ever feels like in your youth group it would be helpful to bring counselors in to do a parenting seminar, we do those all the time all across the country. And sometimes it can be helpful to have somebody who comes in if you're dealing with a lot of anxiety at your church or there's something that you're dealing with, have somebody else who comes in. We all know that. It's, it's part of why y'all are as powerful as you are in the lives of kids. We all need other voices. Kids need them, absolutely, and parents need them too. And so if we can help, that's a place you can go to find out more how to do that. So questions. You want to start us off? Yes. Raising Worry-Free Girls. Yes. I used to refer, before I wrote it, I used to refer to, um, I forgot the name of it, Um, uh, Freeing Your Child from Anxiety by Tamar Chansky, C-H-A-N-S-K-Y. It's like this thick, and parents would not read it. I would say, read this book before you come in and see me in six weeks or whatever, and they'd come in and say, I didn't have time. And so I quit referring to that book and tried to write a shorter one. (laughs) So that would be what I would send them to first and if it's a child I would have them get braver stronger smarter because there really is so much they can do at home so that they don't even I mean that was the intention of writing the raising worry-free girls book is to say do this first don't even go to counseling first try and do some things at home and see if it can help obviously I think counseling is important but yeah Absolutely. And somebody asked me that too earlier about triggers for kids and trauma is absolutely a trigger. If kids have special needs, often they're going to have some anxiety related to that. A kid, kids who have chronic illnesses often have anxiety because they don't understand it. It's been something in their life that's been happening that's been out of control. And so then they can clamp down that much more and want control in an area. And yes, kids on the spectrum. And And I think the more challenging part sometimes with kids in those different situations is they may have hurdles to learning how to talk about it and learning how to work through it. And so I think we have to slow down even more and give them, get to more of building blocks like the emotional vocabulary I think is that much more important and breathing and some mindfulness kind of things that help them process in a way that makes it more manageable. I mean, even kids with like learning hurdles, I think sometimes we can throw things out at them so quickly that they're not keeping up with us. So, yeah, that's a great question. All of those things that are important. Yeah. a great question could y'all hear him um he was saying that he feels like everyone in his youth group now has anxiety based on hearing this conversation and um, maybe himself as well and he said 
this isn't how you said it, but I would imagine there are other things that symptomatically look similar, and how do I make sure I'm not running down a parent saying, I think your child has anxiety when it could be something else. Um, so that is a really good question because y'all, some of y'all may have heard this. Anxiety, and does anybody know what looks almost identical symptomatically? Depression sometimes, ADHD in particular, can look identical to anxiety. And the child who's having trouble focusing, you know, that you're doing the talk at youth group and they are zoned out five minutes in, it's hard, or they're so fidgety, it's hard to know what might be happening because for a child who has ADHD, they can't attend in that moment. They can't focus. For a child who has anxiety, they can, but their brain is so caught in the loop that they're not able to do it in that moment. Does that make sense, the difference? And so <clears throat> when I sit with parents, I kind of am running down the same thing, too, because I mentioned this, but most often what parents will describe is a child who is manipulative, angry, and difficult at home. And so, and, and really, especially when you think about younger kids, they want to please their parents. And so if there's more, if they're acting out in that way, something else is going on. So we've got to figure out what it is. And the things that I have in my mind typically are anxiety, ADHD, or could they, there is also something in the DSM called oppositional defiant disorder. If you haven't heard of that, it's really helpful in understanding some kids. Or we could call them an eight on the Enneagram. No, just kidding. Not, just kidding. Not everybody who's an eight has oppositional defiant disorder. But an eight is a little oppositional by nature. And that's what's hard too. I, I talked to a psychologist last night driving home who, I'm, I'm kidding, if you're an eight, you're not. That doesn't mean you have oppositional divine disorder. Um, but I talked to a psychologist on the way driving home last night, and I have a girl who I really think has ADHD. I mean, she is just so impulsive. She's a freshman in high school, and um, I referred her to him to do some testing, and he said, I'm having trouble figuring it out because she just has a big personality too. Like, she just has trouble containing herself. And so, you know, there's a personality element to all of those things. I mean, we don't, di don't want to diagnose every eight with oppositional defiant disorder. We don't want to diagnose every six with, with anxiety disorder. We don't want to diagnose every four with depression. You know, but if we were to talk about each number on the Enneagram, I sure could say at my worst as a one, I have OCD. You know, I mean, I just think we could pick something for each personality type and say at their worst place, this is what it could get to without help. So I lost track of your question. So, I, I mean, I think with those parents or with those kids, it's asking a lot of questions and helping them talk about it. But I think when they start to describe what's happening, I think the loop is where you can recognize it the quickest because kids with ADHD aren't as likely to loop. They're just spinning off. But also, anxiety and ADHD often occur together. And so it may be that they have both things going on. Or anxiety, when it goes on for a period of time, they can also develop depression or vice versa. So you could have multiple things going on at once. But I think part of why you really want to figure it out or you want to find, and y'all, I would imagine you all have trusted counselors that you can refer to. If you don't, I mean, we really do teach parenting seminars all over the country, and that's one of the biggest questions we get is, where is a counseling place like Daystar in our town? And I wish there was a Daystar in every town because I think it's an amazing place. But I always defer to the church and say, call your church. 
and they will likely have a list of referral. And as a youth, I mean, if y'all can go and meet with those people, we have youth directors meet with us all the time and see what you think. Get a read on would kids relate to them because you know, y'all, you know this as well as I do, you are likely going to refer an adolescent to counseling and that kid is going to be the kid that we see who won't get out of the car. And so you want it to be somebody that not only has experience and is good and that you trust from a spiritual standpoint, but also somebody that kids are going to like. When somebody comes into our offices for counseling, I meet with all the girls the first time. David Thomas or one of our other guys on staff that's a director meets with the boys the first time because that's really the point of our first appointment is I'm going to figure out the counselor I think you'd like the best and that you'd want to go get coffee with. And that's who I'm going to give you because you're much more likely to get working on things if you like the person. And so y'all are going to have the best read on that. And so if you can go and meet with different counselors in your area, that is a tremendous gift to families and to kids that you can short circuit. So you want to find somebody that knows their stuff and can talk about that. But I think to ask more questions can help you get to more of it. Yeah. So kind of when to refer, like how much can you do, um, when do you feel like it's time to pull in somebody else, and I would say a couple of things in that. Um, I, think, I think you all would probably be really masterful at teasing out how much could be attention seeking and help with some of that um, because you know the kids, you know what's going on with them, you know even culturally what things are like for them in terms of the culture of your youth group because what are kids talking about? And so I think that's a time absolutely you don't need to potentially, I think, I think if we can help kids really talk about what they want to do to get people to respond to them and the links they go to sometimes, I don't think you would have to refer. Um, and then there are things that parents can do practically at home um, or kids can even do. And I think, you know, if you were even to bring your child to us for counseling, we would have kind of a method of things we would do too in terms of here are, I mean, or let's say this. Okay, if you came up to me and you had a 12-year-old who was dealing with anxiety, I would say here are five things to try at home first. If you try those things for a couple months and they don't help at all, bring them to a counselor. If you go see the counselor and for several months it's not helping at all, that's when we need to talk about medication. So kind of like you have to wait however many days with a cold before you can get on antibiotics. You know, I think we go to the next level of that. Um, but I, I will say the caveat to that now is the suicide piece of it with kids. And that is, I mean, I have absolutely sent kids to the hospital that I felt like were attention-seeking, and they were not suicidal. But because kids are so impulsive, 
and because I think they're going to such lengths sometimes to get the attention of other kids, I don't feel like I can guarantee that child's safety. And so when that comes into play, I would say they always need to go see somebody that's a mental health professional. I just, I don't, I don't think we ever want to play games with that. Um, and you all know, I don't know if any of you have lost a kid to suicide, but I, I just don't think it's anything we ever want to ever do. And so how do we help? I mean, I think that's a place we win at, land on being overly cautious. So helping parents, yeah. is that what you mean? I mean, I think hands down, the first thing I would say is that they need to deal with their own stuff. And so however we can create, I heard a dog trainer once say that even with dogs, anxiety travels down the leash. And <laughs> that's what we're talking about. And, and so, I, and, and that is something I've seen over the years I've been counseling. I mean, whether it's anxiety, whether it's an eating disorder, whether it's that you didn't feel like your parents understood you, whether, whatever it is, I think for parents, if they're not processing and talking about it and dealing with whatever is going on in their life currently or is a part of their story that they haven't processed, that's going to spill over into the lives of their kids. And so that's a message I would want to communicate over and over and over to parents. And you all see it. You, you hear them make requests, comments that are based on their own unresolved pain. And so I think that's probably the biggest thing. And then I think about how do we – just create cultures of emotional health where we have emotional vocabulary where we're creating a lot more reciprocity is one of the other milestones that we talk about that's basically like the back and forth of conversation I ask a question then you ask me a question back that in a normal daily part of conversation that's what happens and we know I mean y'all I cannot tell you how often I sit with groups of adolescents and one of them will say something like my parents decided they're getting divorced over the weekend and told me, and the other kids do what? They just stare at them. They don't say a word because not only, I mean, we do, we have a Raising Girls book, and then there's a book called Wild Things that talks about normal development, and we call adolescents the narcissistic here. So they are thinking about themselves mostly, but they're also self-conscious, and they think, if I say something, I'm going to say the wrong thing. I shouldn't say anything. I don't know what to do in that moment. And so to create an awareness and a responsiveness to others where there's that back and forth, I think, can help them. I mean, they naturally are more aware of what's happening to them 
what other people are doing to them than what they're doing to other people. And so to create more awareness of that back and forth and to help them in small groups even ask questions of each other where it's not just I'm talking and then you're each going to share. But what do you want to ask so-and-so that we're helping them give to each other in those ways I think is a preventative thing too that we're moving towards emotional health in all of those ways. Does that answer your question? Yeah. You're so welcome. a really good question. I, I, um, I love, y'all know there's a movement that started out of Austin called Wait Until Eight that's like keeping kids off smartphones until eighth grade, which I think is such a great idea, and I wish that we could adopt it as a country. So it happened for everyone because for the kids that their parents do do that, those children struggle a lot when the kindergartners in their class get it. You know, I mean, I think I, I don't have like a magic age that I think kids should get cell phones, tablets, social media, any of those things. But what I say to parents often is you want to be parenting, I mean, in all things, with a group of like-minded parents. And in that, you don't want your kids to be the first to have every technological advancement, but you also don't want them to be the last. And so I'll say to parents, be the next to last. Um, you know, where you hold off as long as you can. But I... I, I teach a parenting class on technology, and I was doing it at a church not far from here. And um, I, I really, everything I teach when I'm talking about that is I want you to let the rope out gradually, pull it back in when they mess up. So they're learning responsible techno technological use in your home. Because when they mess up, you want to be there to help them figure it out rather than they mess up and they're not with you. So, And it's awful. I don't know if y'all have ever done parenting stuff on technology. It's miserable to teach on because the parents just look like but I was teaching it and there was this man in the back of the room that I could tell I was just infuriating him infuriating him with everything I said <laughs> and there was a Q&A thing at the end which was awful and um and so somebody took him the microphone and he stood up no one was standing and he stood up and he was like I just have to say something I have raised five children and let me tell you that technology is not a child's God-given right and he said, when my son was 18 and we were driving him to his high school graduation was the first time I let him send a photo from his phone and the first time I let him get on the Internet on, the, on his phone. And then he said, so if your child is on the Internet, go home and shut it down. Just like that. And then he thought we didn't hear him. And so he repeated it again louder. At the end of this time that I've been trying to, like, be so gentle. And so, you know, all I could do was say, let me pray for us and just close the time because I not know what to do. But, and I don't know if y'all are like me, but I thought, that kid, can you imagine? He went from no freedom at all in May to August sitting in his dorm room, and he had every freedom in the house. That's concerning to me. I mean, I think in all things, we want to help parents learn to let the rope out gradually so when kids do turn 18 and move away or go to college, it's not that, woo, I can finally do whatever it is. And, and when I sit with parents who say things like, my daughter's 17, but she's not emotionally mature enough to drive a car yet. Really, who of us were emotionally mature enough to drive a car at 17? You know, but there are milestones and things they need to be able to do so that they learn freedom, responsible freedom in all things. And then we pull it right back in. And I'm not saying 
you know, obviously don't let your kids drink at 13 or 17. But, you know, how do you think about letting the rope out and pulling it back in over and over? So that's kind of a big picture response. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Or teenagers not wanting to wet, sorry. Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. Did, did y'all hear her over there? So she said, um, knowing that a lot of kids aren't going to talk about it, don't have the words to use, are there body languages or things they could express where they're saying it without saying it, which is a great question. And, and I think, honestly, the kids that y'all are working with are going to be much more likely to tell you than their parents because y'all are that voice that comes in that is so important in their lives with so much impact. Um, but if they're not talking about the things, I would watch for physical. I, I mean, y'all, we all have these kids. I have, I feel like I always have one girl on my caseload of clients who once a month is in a boot or in a splint on her arm. Y'all know what I'm talking about? We all have those kids that have something on all the time. And I think something's up with those kids. Like, that's not just that they're more injury prone something's up that they're feeling like I need to wear something on my body so that somebody notices that I'm hurt. And so if there are patterns like that that you see with kids, whether it's I have pain and I'm going to tell you that my stomach hurts or I'm wearing something on my body, um, used to with kids who would cut themselves, they would wear all the bracelets. I don't think they do that anymore. But y'all know that if you have kids in the spring and you're living in Florida and they're wearing long sleeves all the time. I mean, those are things to watch out for. Um, but I would say that kind of loops. I mean, if you hear a kid talk about the same thing over and over or just kids you know who are really perfectionistic, I would check on any kid who's like that. Any I, I think I really work with kids because I was the kid who smiled all the time and was the president of every club I was ever in. And nobody said to me, sissy, no one smiles all the time there's got to be more going on. And I wish someone had. I mean, I think that's why I do what I do, so I can be that person. Y'all do what you do so that you can be a person that you feel like you wish you had had a lot of you in your lives or that you had and that meant so much to you. And so I think to pay attention to kids that we know might be more prone to it, or y'all know, if you have a kid who you either have heard something is going on in their family or you just can tell when their parents drop them off. Or you meet the parents, you see them at church, you can tell. I think those are the kids I would press in a little bit more. And y'all know with adolescents, our, so at Daystar we have a model of counseling that's soften, shape, strengthen. And Melissa, our director, she was a youth director before she ever became a counselor. And so that's her background. And I love that model. And what she talks about is what y'all are doing on a daily basis, that, that we're never going to see kids change or help them unless they're softening first which is relationship, it's hanging out with them, it's going to coffee with them, going to their school, all those things y'all are doing all the time. And then shape is actually helping them work through whatever it is, helping them anchor to truth. And then strengthening is having kids have an opportunity to get that. And that's something I left off of your question about preventative or the upstream question. Every kid needs to be given something. Every kid that we're working with to help them see that the world is bigger than they are and there's so much 
research about how when kids can see that they're making a difference somewhere else, it inflates their self-confidence in a really great way. And the kids that we get most concerned about that are suicidal are the ones who don't believe their lives matter. And so we need to be helping kids find that and experience that. So that, that um, softening and the shaping part of it, I love where I work because I think there are a lot of counselors in the world who don't get to do this. But we have a park next to Daystar. We'll take kids on walks at the park. I will take kids to go get coffee sometimes with their parents' permission. Um, we do have a camp for the kids that are involved in Daystar. And I have much more powerful talks sometimes sitting on a boat side by side with a kid than I do staring each other in the face because, and, and parents, I think as much as we can help parents with things like that too, they need y'all to weigh in on that kind of stuff. I tell parents often that adolescents feel awkward about intimacy, not with each other as much, but with their parents in particular. And so when a parent is saying, how was your day? They get fine. What'd you do at school today? Nothing. That's why parents get one word answers so often. And so helping parents understand that kind of side-by-side relating rather than going in with such intensity because it shuts them down. And y'all, that's, I'm talking about y'all, y'all do that all the time. That's your normal life is relating to kids in those ways. Um, okay, maybe two more questions. Yes. Regresses to the anxious parent, is that what she said? Uh-huh. Yes, that was so insightful. You said that beautifully, yes. Do you think, um, that's a great question. Um, I I do think often the anxious parent is probably the mom. Um, Not always, not always. I would say my practice probably 70% of the time it's the mom. Um, And you're right. I think often the other parent is checking out. And and the anxious parent has a louder voice anyway because they're so anxious and intense. Um, And so, I mean, I think there are several different ways you could – um, come at that. I mean, one thing I will, I am the, the female counselor <laughs> that all of our other counselors at Daystar send the type A moms to me because I'm type A and so I understand it a little bit better. But, but one thing I would say in any of our work with a parent who's anxious is going back to that, like trying hard. I mean, parents who are anxious are trying so hard. They're driving themselves into the ground. They're trying so hard. And I think when we can say things, like if I were to refer a parent to counseling, I would come at it more from the perspective of, it is so hard to raise a child today. I can tell that you are so overwhelmed because you just have so much going on. I can't even imagine how you're functioning right now. I want you to have some support. I'd love for you to go see a counselor because that's going to go over a million times better than me saying, your stuff is spilling over all into the life of your kids. (laughs) And you got to see somebody, which is what part of me wants to say. But I think 
I think the hard thing is, I'll just keep calling myself out. I think often as a type A personality, if you came to me and said what I was doing wrong, I'm likely either going to be really nice and appropriate in the moment and then beat myself up when I walk away, or I'm going to get defensive with you, neither of which are maybe going to lead me to take my child to counseling. And so I think as much as we can think about how do we make them feel like we're coming alongside them, you know, soften, shape, and strengthen works with parents too. And how do we create a relationship where they're much more likely to hear us? And then when we say to that anxious parent, I mean, again, blame it on me. I saw this woman speak who's been counseling kids for 27 years, and she said that this is a family. It's not just a childhood epidemic. It's a family epidemic. And that she's seen more parents ever than ever before who are trying so hard, and they end up feeling anxiety themselves. And so I'd love for you to read this book, or I'd love, here's somebody you all could go talk to as a family that I think could help you. So just that our posture is that kind of like, I'm on your team. I'm on your child's team, but I'm on your team too. I think that would probably be a helpful approach. Because that works too. Yeah. <coughs> he said, Jesus says to repent. There you go. You got it from a, a scriptural standpoint. That's a great response. Yes, absolutely. He said, he sees a lot of parents who will say anxiety or depression is a spiritual issue, not an emotional one. He didn't say it that way exactly, but that it's sin that they need to repent of. Um, and I think, I think when, you can, when you can talk about it from a standpoint of the physiological, what happens physiologically in the brain when a child gets anxious, and obviously your child is angry or they're, they're melting down or they're getting dis, they're debilitated by whatever's happening, that's not about, even if it's about, I mean, a child may have anxiety born out of a sin that they don't know how to talk about. You know what I mean? Like they could get, it can all tie together, but regardless to say this is sin, you've got to repent and you'll be better is not going to help them when they get to that moment. So I, I feel like I, you were saying in the South, it does, that doesn't seem to happen as much as in some areas of the country, but, but I think I don't hear that as much because I have the parent in counseling, so they obviously are a step toward that. But even with the manipulative piece, when I can get a parent to look at what's happening in the body and in the brain and talk about it from a scientific standpoint, I'm not having to debate the spiritual aspect as much because that feels like in their face they're watching it happen with their child. And then, yes, Jesus was anxious in the garden. I would go back to that. He wept. He had a full range of emotions that were really important. Um, I don't know, Michael, where we are. In I don't know where you went. So should we do one more, or do you feel like it's? <laughs> I have a counseling session at one. Um,
That's a great question. He said um, you have a room full of youth leaders and you're being positive and telling us the things we can do, but you're not telling us the mistakes that maybe we're making that you could point out that could help kids. Um, is that a good summary? Um, you know, I, I think y'all are doing an amazing job with kids. I mean, I do think I, I wish more psychiatrists in the country recognized when kids were being manipulative, and I think I think that piece of things is probably really important, and not that that means we minimize, because I don't think that's helpful if a child's manipulating, because if they're manipulating, they're trying to get us to do the opposite of minimize. But I think when we can start with empathy always, that sounds really hard. Um, our magic formula that we tell parents over and over and over is empathy and questions, not magic. It's just they can remember it. So, you know, when a child is facing some roadblock, because kids have less grit, less resourcefulness, as we all know, than ever before, to say, that sounds really hard. What do you want to do about it? What do you believe God wants you to do in this moment? And so, I mean, I think that's a great thing to be doing with kids, too, when they're facing so that we're not trying to fix it for them either. Um, I would say, um, and I, I mean, again, you, this is y'all's bread and butter. You know this. But the older we get, the more I think kids need to be learning to connect the dots themselves. Where we're not, where we are obviously doing direct teaching. Y'all are really the only ones who are getting away with direct teaching by the time they're hitting later adolescence. We're not looking at the parents so much at the time. But that we're also asking really good questions to get them to connect the dots. Um, in small groups and times like that, I think it's really important. Um, asking them what they think about different issues. Um, I've had so many, I, I don't know that I ever remember as many adolescent girls who have been sad about a tragedy as they have been about Kobe Bryant. I don't know if y'all have been around kids since that happened, but I mean, I, it was a great opportunity for me to say, why do you think that's personally been so hard for you? What's going on with that? And, um, and I learned a lot hearing them talk about it. <coughs> so I think that feels important. Um, I think listening, I mean, always listening so important with kids I mean it, it's just things y'all are doing um I will ha I have one thing I would suggest how about this I, probably none of y'all have ever done this but this is just a thing that sometimes happens in, in youth groups that I hear impact kids a lot um and that is when there's a group confession everybody has an opportunity to talk about how they have sinned against against a group hurt someone else and so just as a counselor for girls because what happens is some girl uses that as a platform to be passive-aggressively mean. Well, when I talked about you with all five of my friends, I sinned against you, and I'd like to ask your forgiveness. I feel like those kind of things inevitably happen, where somebody ends up being more hurt than they were by the secret sin. So um, that's a really silly thing. Again, I don't think pe many people are doing that anymore, but that would be something I would say just yeah is a good practice yes last question I'm gonna move back over here okay everyone's pointing at you oh good
That is, uh, thank you for saying that. I love that question because you're exactly right, and, and I would have wanted that to be addressed. So she said um, she sees a lot of kids who have these big spiritual questions that she feels like really are more rooted in anxiety than they are that the child is actually having this existential crisis or doesn't think they believe in Jesus anymore. That kind of summarizing. Um, and so that loop, the way that I start off the Raising Worry-Free Girls, I'm saying all these things that I think y'all might think I'm crazy, but um, the way I start off that book is talking about that feeling that maybe I hope a few of you have had with me where you're driving over a bridge and you think, I could just go off the bridge. Um, so hopefully some of y'all felt that too so I don't feel alone in it. But um, <laughs> that does not mean I'm suicidal, that I felt that. But, again, for somebody who's anxious, that then they think, I want to kill myself because I just had a thought of wanting to go off. We all have intrusive thoughts, all of us, thousands of them every day. For a child who has anxiety, one of the books I read talked about how it's like they don't have a mail sorter to filter out the junk mail. So they don't know that some of those intrusive thoughts are not real, and so they loop about them. All the things that we've talked about, separation, anxiety, I mean, all these different things can happen, but it's, it's not just the scariest thing they can imagine happening. It's also the big question. So a scary thing could be, I mean, my hope is that every child under your tutelage at some point says, do I really believe in God? Dan Allender, I saw his books out there. He's a psychologist that I love, and he says, I can never trust someone who never doubted in God which is a bold statement, but they're going to ask those questions. And so I'd rather them ask them when they're sitting under you and can talk through it than when they're somewhere else. But someone who has anxiety, when that pops into their head, they're going to think, I don't believe in God. Maybe I'm an atheist and loop and loop and loop and go around and around and around about it. And that is, I should say, spiritual faith is one of the biggest things I see kids looping around. And sometimes it's middle school kids that are, not necessarily thinking about the bigger questions, but they just had one random thought. And sometimes it's high school kids who are thinking about the bigger questions, but they can't get out of it or they can't talk themselves out of it because it's that anxious loop. And so, and it's the kids who rededicate themselves 30 times. You know, I think we didn't understand back what was happening 20 years ago, but I think that's part of why. And so to be able to say to a child, I'm trying to think of how you – a helpful way to talk through that. I think it could be something like, I mean, I think we always want to validate and start with, you know, it's such an important question. I love that you're thinking through that. And, um, you know, all of us have certain things that get stuck in our brain. Do you have things like that other than this question? I mean, I would ask something like that to see if you can get to, well, yeah, I do worry a lot about something bad happening to my parents. Or I worry a lot about, if my friends think I'm weird or aren't, aren't going to want to be my friend or if I'm going to fail, whatever it is, or I'm going to blow it in front of everyone with a basketball, you know, whatever. I mean, and then if they say that, then I think you could go back to, so the way that that affects us, I heard somebody describe it as the one loop roller coaster at the fair, and the way it affects us is it takes a lot of different um, categories. And so one of those sometimes is the faith. I mean, I don't even think you have to call it worry or anxiety. I think you could just say we all can get in that loop. And, and it sounds to me like your faith is one of the places you're looping. And so when that happens, I want you to remind yourself of some truths that you know. And I, I think that's where scripture could help, you know, that they have a verse that they go back to over and over, that they remind themselves of 
you know, God loves me. And, you know, I have this thing that I'm anchored to when I start to lose. I feel so simple. Yeah. So that's a great question. Thank you. Okay. All right, crew. Let's give Sissy our appreciation for the Lord. Thanks, y'all. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, while she uh, she will be here for a, but a moment, um, she does have others to go and love and care for. Um, I just want to remind you, we do have a, a, a bevy of days.